Oh, Father, we thank you for bringing us safely through another week and to the beginning of a new one. And we thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness, for all that you do for us, for your watch care, for your protection, for your blessing in this past week. And now as we think of the Lord's Day, always we just desire that you will put us in that frame of mind that is expectant, that we come looking to be a blessing as well as to be blessed, and uh, our hearts are open to those things that you might use from your word to encourage us and help us, to guide us. And uh, we realize, Lord, in many cases, it may not be something that's particularly necessary for us today, and you're certainly able then to store that up in our consciousness in order that it might be there for just the time that you need to bring it to our attention and into our lives. I pray, Lord, for every adult Bible fellowship class. Bless Ron as he teaches, Patrick as he teaches. Bless us here. Be with the other classes that are meeting in the building, those who watch the children. And then, Lord, as we look beyond to uh, the morning worship and even the evening service, would you grant us your blessing in this day? And we'll thank you now for what you do for us. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Well, we are in 2 Peter chapter 2 once again, so if you find that place, we will read our verses for today. So we're going to read from verse number 4 and read down through verse 9, so we don't have an exceptionally long section today, although once again, you kind of, there's so much in this that you could talk about that, you know, it's, again, it's kind of one of those challenges about how to handle it. But uh, the section that we have beginning in verse 10, which will begin next time, is the real challenge. Look at that in your Bible. I'm not sure how it's laid out, but, you know, if last week we did verses 1 through 3 and found that challenging because of so much in it, it's so concentrated, and if this morning we have a little bit longer section but more to talk about that would be especially interesting than we possibly have time for, can you only imagine the challenge of next time? So I'm pretty sure I'm going to try to find a way to divide this into two parts. And uh, I'll measure out my Sundays and see where I am and give myself uh, a little, little uh, care for something unforeseen. But I think we may be able to do that. So I, I, I am so grateful if you happen to think to pray during the week that the Lord will just guide and bless and in this. All right, verse 9. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as, and notice this is a parenthetical, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Just a little trivia, okay? This is um, not a factoid. This is true. But it is sort of interesting. Did you notice, if you, uh, if you know anything about grammar or remember it lazily from, <laughs> you know, those days, um, I, I look back and I see how God was providential because I went to a, uh, a prep school that was very strong in this kind of thing. And, of course, then grammar played a big, big factor in 
what went on, especially when you studied languages. But nevertheless, it's something, when you think about a conditional clause or a conditional statement, so you have the if part, right? And then you have the then part. Well, here's your little trivia for today. This is all one sentence. What we read is all one sentence. You probably get marked down for that in English class because it's so long. But you'll notice it starts with if in verse number four. And the translation actually sort of helps us with this because they supply the if, which is completely appropriate under the circumstances. You'll notice verse five, if. Verse six, if. Verse seven, if. We really don't get to the then until verse nine. So that helps you, once you see that, that really sort of helps you follow the thought of the writer and understand in particular what he's trying to do. We're looking at a lesson today that I'm calling Don't Kid Yourself because it deals with judgment. You remember when we left off last time, we saw that statement in verse number three where he says, this is the last verse of the section before, so there's a, there's a definite connection to what went before and it's important, I think, to see that. And in their greed, they will exploit you. These are the false teachers. With false words, their condemnation, their sentence, the verdict that God has passed on this type of conduct, from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Remember, we were sort of running out of time with this, but I pointed out to you that that word, their destruction is not asleep, is kind of interesting because... If you take, take that verse that we looked at last time in Matthew 25 and verse 5, I think it is, you have a good way to see the difference in two words where you have sleep and then you have falling asleep or nodding off. This is the nodding off. So what thought does this leave us with about God's judgment? Well, the impression that a lot of people have, and I think you have to broaden this out even to God's people sometimes, the, the impression that, that God, as it sa says here in the introduction, just... It seems like the people that are in this world get away with murder. They do things that are ungodly. Peter talks about their moral abandon, and we're certainly seeing that in this day in which we live. We hear the most outlandish statements being made now. We hear filthy language from people who ought to know better, who are in positions of, of leadership and political high places. All of this kind of thing, not to mention the apostasy that we see around us, and the false teaching that we see around us. And did you ever kind of think to yourself, you know, is this ever going to really catch up with them? And the answer is most definitely. Peter makes the statement as this ends up, it may seem as if their sentence is idle. Maybe it seems like somehow God forgot what he said long ago that he was going to do. And their destruction is not asleep. God maybe has just sort of tuned out God is just sort of asleep at the switch. God's kind of nodding off while people do things in his world that are just outrageous. Did you ever sort of get that feeling sometimes? And I think if you read the Psalms in particular, you certainly find examples of where it's talking about the thought processes of the wicked. And the wicked many times certainly think that because that's one of the reasons they feel uh, free to do what they do because it just seems to them like, nothing's going to happen. Doesn't seem like anything ever has. We're going to get to that argument in uh, chapter 3 of 2 Peter. But sometimes as God's people, we feel that way too. You know, it just, it just seems like 
God is letting the world go to hell in a handbasket, and has God just sort of taken vacation? What's going on? And I, I was blessed this week. I Very early in the week, so I don't know whether this is just because this was in my subconscious or what, but I was reading in the Psalms, and this is just a kind of a continual practice of mine because I, every day, God willing, I have an Old Testament reading I do, a New Testament reading I do, and then I'm working th- through on a, on, a, on a cycling basis, either the Psalms or Proverbs. So I'll read, when I'm in the Psalms, I read two a day until I'm done, and then I do the Proverbs one a day until I'm done, and then I start the Psalms over again, and I just repeat that cycle, uh, and I'm sure I will for as many days as I have breath. But I, I hit Psalm 10, and I thought that uh, I just, right away I read the first verse, and I just thought, you know, Lord, this is exactly what we're talking about. Psalm 10.1, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, this is the psalmist pouring out his heart, so this is the child of God, sort of feeling like the world, it just seems like God lets them go on their merry way and get by with all kinds of things. And then he, the whole psalm begins to develop this. I, I, I couldn't put a lot of it here, but... To give you a feel for it, the first several verses, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And then, notice I've skipped to verse 14, because this is where the psalmist sort of gets a hold of his thoughts, speaking of it from a human way of recounting it. And he says, oh, but you see, you do see. You do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. Psalm 10, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 14. That verse 14, folks, is what I'm talking about today. That's the assurance that we need to keep in mind. It may seem this way sometimes, but Peter is reassuring his readers that that's not the case at all. And by the way, I'm going to uh, just sort of lay the foundation for something that will not really come up again in substance, I don't think, until we get to the very end of this lesson. But I want you to think about it because... You heard, as I read these verses, you've read these verses before, and you might say, well, you know, this is a really great text. I mean, if you really wanted to preach a sermon on hellfire and brimstone and damnation, this would be a good place to come. Well, I guess if you want to do that, I mean, (laughs) I mean, well, having said that, let me clarify my thought processes for you. Uh, In all the years of reading the Bible, studying the Bible, teaching the Bible, and preaching the Bible, When God has given it as my task to speak on this subject, I do. But I don't take any pleasure in it. And I I hope that you understand what I'm trying to say by this. I mean, I do not delight in a hellfire and brimstone and damnation message. It may be necessary at times to reiterate that message, and it is a part of the whole counsel of God, is it not? But there's something wrong with a person who can preach this and take delight in it. Because the more you see of what the Bible describes about the fate of the wicked and eternal punishment for those who don't know Christ as Savior, it is so horrific. I don't even think we can really begin to totally wrap our minds around it. And I, so I just, it's one of those things that I, 
I know I can't fully understand it. I accept that God is just in everything he does, and I don't discount anything his word says. I take it for what it says. But, you know, as much as that is clear, I mean, hellfire is clear in this passage. So is fire and brimstone clear in this passage. So is condemnation clear in this passage. But it's really not the emphasis that Peter has. He's writing to believers. He wants to encourage believers. And why would a subject like this encourage believers? Because if you and I are like the psalmist, if you and I are sitting around thinking, God's just abandoned us. I mean, the wicked get away with whatever they get away with. Nothing ever happens to them. It seems like their judgment is idle and that God has nodded off. Then don't kid yourself. That's today's message, and really, that the other is in the background. No question, the other is in the background. We are going to see that. You can't get away from it. But you should really know what Peter's key, I mean, he's, he's keying in on his readers to make these points, not keying so much, so much in on the false teachers, though they're obviously the subject of what's going on. All right, so we're going to make two statements from this. I mentioned here, Peter draws on three illustrations to show that both notions are mistaken. In other words, if the wicked think they're going to get away, they're sadly mistaken. But on the other hand, if we as God's people think that God isn't aware of what's going on, that somehow God has forgotten the moral fabric that he wove into this universe when he created it, and his own moral law that is written on our hearts, then... Don't kid yourself and be encouraged. God is in complete control and God is going to bring to pass everything that he has said in his word. And Peter gives us three illustrations to make that point. So, how I'm going to organize this, the three illustrations will be under this first thought and then the second thought we'll get to, you can see. So, remember the big long sentence? Remember everything being in verses 4 through 8 except verse 9? Well, there's your, there's your point for verses 4 through 8. Then if you look down at your paper that you have, you'll see that in the last, when we finally get to this, so here's what Peter ends on. This is the point I'm making. God knows how to deliver the righteous. That's, that's really what he wants to get to for the sake of his readers. And the other, I won't say is incidental, but it's in the background, although it's abundantly plain and clear. So let's have a look at it. If you want to know just how serious God is about judgment, now I've, I've, I've worded it this way on purpose because if you think about, people say things all the time and then you kind of go back later and you think to yourself, well, just how serious were they about that? God's very serious. God is very serious. If you doubt that or if you wonder just how serious or committed God is to what he has said, then, first of all, take this as an example, in verse number four, he booted angels who sinned out of heaven and delivered them to hell to await his final judgment. Now, you're looking at the verse and you might say, hmm, kind of funny how you chose to word that. You didn't say he booted the angels, you said he booted angels. A couple of reasons for this. One is because the article isn't there in the original and there is a small, small turn of thought that arises from that, okay? And it tends to lay emphasis on angels. So how serious is God's judgment? 
He booted angels out of heaven who sinned. I mean, if somehow we're thinking of the famous words that Mark Twain put into the, into the mouth of, um, Tom's, uh, of Huck Finn in his, this is kind of a famous line that Huck Finn says, all right, then I'll go to hell. Well, that's a, that's a very unwise bravado. That's a very foolhardy thing to say. That's a very uh, foolish bravado, as I pointed out a moment ago. Because if you think you're going to get away, you're sadly mistaken. God didn't countenance in heaven, and he's not going to countenance it here. The angels didn't get away with it. If the angels didn't get away with it, what makes you think you're going to get away with it? All right, let's take this apart a little bit and what little bit of time we can spend on this, because as I say, you can really wax eloquent on this one. So what's he talking about and when did this happen? Well, there's two key thoughts on this. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. I'll tell you the one I lean to. Some people envision this as being a pre-Adamic rebellion. And, you know, one of the verses that's used in connection with that is that verse in Job. I didn't even give it to you because I didn't want to spend a lot of time with this. But when it talks about when the morning, when the sons of God shouted for joy and this, this scene that appears to be pre-Adamic. So they envisioned the angels being in existence then. I'm not saying that's wrong at all, but they point that out. And so they envision here some kind of a pre-Adamic, that is before man was created, rebellion that takes place and God deals with these people. Or a second interpretation is that it has to do with a special situation or occasion that occurred as recorded in Genesis chapter 6. So I have these verses for you, and so I'm not going to keep you in any uh, doubt as to that. I, I personally lean towards this view. But let's look at this. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were attractive. So who are the sons of God here? Well, and, and again, there's a debate over how you interpret this passage. Some people think the sons of God refer to the godly line, that is the line of Seth. Other people say, no, that expression is used in the Bible, just as I quoted that or, or alluded to that verse from Job, the sons of God. Is, is an expression used in the Old Testament for spiritual being, angels, if you will. All right, if that's the case, then what, what happened? They saw the daughter, daughters of men that they were attractive, and they took as wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Then it says this, which is kind of an interesting thing to mention in this connection. And again, there could be other reasons, but... The Nephilim, so that's how you, you find it uh, translated in the ESV. Uh, the King James renders it giants, and also uh, you will have a footnote more than likely in the ESV if you turn actually back to the reference that also provides you with the alternate translation, excuse me, giants. So the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, men of renown. All right, that sounds intriguing, huh? What's going on there? And again, different thoughts. But then you come over and you see Jude's account of this, because Jude treats a lot of the same subject matter that we have in 2 Peter 2. And he says this, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains, 
under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, now here's something interesting, which likewise seems to draw our attention back to what happened in the case of verse number 6, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So study it out, talk to different people if you need to, come to the opinion you think is the correct one, but we can't bog down on it because we'll, we'll be here forever. It's fascinating to talk about. So those are your two options there, but regardless of what it is, here you have these angels who sinned and God lowered the boom on them. In what way did he lower the boom? Well, it says in our text here, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, uh, I'm sorry, I meant to get the phrase before, but cast them into hell. Well, that would seem to be a standard English expression to us, right? That's what you would say if you were thinking about the place where the lost go after death, uh, or ultimately where they go, the lake of fire. But she, Peter chooses to use a word here that occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. And he uses it in a verb form, but the noun reference would be to tartarus. And that's not something on your teeth that the dental hygienist spends 20 minutes trying to get off when you go in for your tooth cleaning. That's a place in, well, Greek mythology. We can, we can say it that way, but then you're going to ask this question, what's Peter doing taking a term from Greek mythology? Well, it makes a point for one thing, but in, in the Greek way of thinking and with, with the gods, Zeus, and all of that whole situation, there was a place that was envisioned for exceptionally wicked people as well as uh, the gods who who were evil, and it actually, as I say here in the notes, it was considered to be a place even lower than Hades, which is the unseen world, the place of the, the, the departed dead, or it would be in the Jewish way of thinking the equivalent of Gehenna. That was the term that Jesus used. So Peter brings this term out because I think uh, it has a way of touching bases with perhaps some of these false teachers. But at the same point, he's also making a point, this is, you know, if you think of degrees of punishment, these people are, these angels are in a bad way. So that's the first illustration that he gives. Now, here's a point to distinguish. What about demons? So the angels that are involved in what he's talking about in verse 4 are not all spirit beings. They're not all angels. First of all, there are the good angels, but there are also a host of demons. Remember when Jesus was on the earth, he encountered this all the time. He, he came up to a man when he crossed over the Sea of Galilee, and he's commonly referred to in your Bible, the heading is usually in Mark chapter 5, the maniac of Gadara. Remember him and Jesus met him, this man who was willing, uh, living in the tombs, and they had tried to bind him with chains and they couldn't because those demons would somehow come on him and provide some kind of a surge of strength, and he'd rip those chains off. I don't know anybody like that today. That's just, just weird. But when Jesus walked up to him, right away these demons were in fear, and in the course of the conversation that actually takes place between Jesus and the man and the demon, 
Jesus says, what is your name? Do you remember that? And he said, my name is, do you remember what he said? Legion, for we are many. Anybody know the full strength of a Roman legion? 6,000. Can you imagine? So I don't know whether legion is just meant to mean many. In other words, you don't take it completely literally. But 6,000 is a lot of demons to have. This guy's a bad dude. Well, so they're on the loose. They were on the loose in Jesus' day. There's quite a few demons on the loose, if you haven't noticed. So this, these, this is a special group that God struck them down for what they did. All right, let's move along. So here's another. So, so here's the point, though, of this particular choice of an illustration. If you think you're going to get by, angels didn't get by. Let's look at the next one. So secondly, in verse number five, he didn't spare the ancient world. Now, this also is fascinating. So you see why I say you could talk about this for a long time. He destroyed the whole world of the antediluvians, the people living before the flood. And if you read what the verse says, is he not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon. What's translated flood is literally the word cataclysm. The judgment that God brought on the ancient world was cataclysmic. Absolutely cataclysmic. And it encompassed not just as in the case of our first example, even though they were angels and they didn't get by, it wasn't all, not even all the wicked ones. But in this particular case, this is an entire world with the exception of eight people. Do you realize this, folks? The whole world of the antediluvians, because look what it says, he brought this upon the world of the ungodly. And again, there's no article, so it would be completely proper. You can render it this way, but it would also be completely proper to bring out the force of that by saying he brought it upon an ungodly world. And in a practical sense, I take this as a warning to people who, again, that false bravado of people, when you're talking about this subject, well, they say, well, if hell... It, you know, I've had this one, well, preacher, you know, if hell is what you're saying it is, it's sure a lot of people go in there. That argument doesn't do play very well against what this verse is saying right here because God brought a cataclysm on an entire ungodly world. This is serious, folks. God is serious about judgment. All right, thirdly, he rained fire and out of heaven. Why did he choose to do that? Because Jude says he determined to appoint that, as I have in the second point here. He determined to appoint them as an example of the suffering of eternal vengeance, eternal fire. God placed them. It's actually a perfect participle in Greek, which... You can recall over the years Pastor Whitcomb talking about that. You have the force of that, meaning something that takes place in the past and has force in the present. God determined when that happened. He selected them and appointed them. And it has force from that point forward 
for every generation as an example. What did he do? Well, again, look at your translation, and I'll give you some, some word background here that might sort of... It says, if by turning, verse number 6, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to distinction, making them an example. So what you have in that phrase where the ESV uses this uh, idea about extinction, I'm not especially fond of that because I can see how some people reading the Bible and not really thinking about it real well might come up with the idea, well, okay, they are no more. This is annihilation. That's not what this is saying. If, did I not advance this? I guess I didn't. Okay, so, or maybe I hit the button and it went back. If we had the word cataclysm with respect to the antediluvian world, here we have another world. He turned them to ashes. And again, it's a verb form, but the noun form that you would get from that would be ashes. And it would be used, it has been used in secular Greek literature basically for a funeral pyre. Well, to me, it's kind of a ghastly subject, but I mean, if you think of the modern equivalent of that, which is the crematory, but look at this now. The phrase is literally having turned them to ashes in a catastrophe. What the ESV chooses to bring out by, an, by extinction is literally the word that we bring right into English as catastrophe. What has God done? God brought an absolute cataclysm on an ungodly world. God brought an absolute catastrophe on these cities. You can't even find them today, although archaeologists seem to have a fairly good idea that they may be under the southern end of the Dead Sea. You certainly have a long-standing example of what it would be like to have fire and brimstone and all those things. Have you, how many people have ever been to the Dead Sea? A few of you. Uh, I only saw two, actually. Anybody else? Because I saw the masters. Did you guys go in the water? Yeah, it's, it's educational. Does anybody happen to know? <laughs> yeah, don't do that with any open cuts or anything. Does anybody know the normal percentage of seawater salinity? I've forgotten, too. Six? Something like that? I've forgotten. Somebody look it up on their phone or something. But this is like 26 or 27%. They tell you you can do this, and if you don't believe them, they'll give you a newspaper. I did it. You go walking out in this water where it's deep enough for you to lean back, lie on your back, and read the newspaper. It's that, that water is that solid. That water is that heavy with all of that. Tell you what, folks, God is serious. God is deathly serious about judgment. So here's another interesting thing before we go further or before we end up this. So as a sidelight, it's kind of interesting to notice that you not only have Peter, but you have also Jesus who document the historicity of these examples. So if you say, well, you know, those are fairy tales from the Old Testament, kind of like Jonah and the great fish. That's just another one of those Old Testament fairy tales. Well, unless you think Jesus told fairy tales. Bugs me that thing goes off the paper on the left. Anyway, just as it was in the days of Noah, Luke 17, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying. They were under the same false impression that God's asleep. They don't worry about judgment. They were eating and drinking and giving in marriage. Nothing wrong with those things. They just 
weren't thinking that God was going to intervene until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, all perfectly legitimate activities. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the earth, or let the, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field not turn back. And as if to reinforce the historicity, he says, don't forget Lot's wife either. Now, I want to draw a quick point before we go to our last thought. Don't worry, it's only one verse. But there is a commonality in these examples. There are differences and there are different points you can make, but I think it's really important, set against the backdrop of these false teachers, their moral abandon and their antipathy to God's truth and the spokesmen and women for God's truth, it's interesting to notice what all three of these examples have in common. What did the angels that he's talking about here do? They rejected God and his word. God set, God set boundaries, regardless of what you think that thing's talking about, whether you think it's a, an actual moral, sexual type perversion, or whether you think it's another boundary, God set boundaries. They left their first estate, as it's translated. They violated those boundaries. They violated what God said, you can't do this. So they rejected God and his truth. What did the antediluvians do? They rejected God and his truth. Why are you saying that? Well, because Noah was a preacher of righteousness, or a herald, as it's translated here for us, a herald of righteousness. So every day when Noah, I don't know how long you think it took Noah to build the ark, but it didn't happen in a week. So think about it. Every day when Noah went out there with his hammer or whatever he used in the construction of this thing and his sons, and especially if you believe, and again, I won't try to settle this one for you, that it hadn't rained on the earth up until that point, and Noah goes out there, hey, Shem, hand me that two-by-four over there. People come up, Noah, what are you doing? Building an ark? An ark. Noah, do you know how far the sea is from here? Don't worry about that, it's coming to us. What? I'm telling you, God's sending judgment. God has made it plain. He's going to judge this world. <laughs> Sound familiar? They had a clear testimony in Noah, whether verbal or by his life, probably both. What about the third example? Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, well, they didn't have any testimony. Oh, yes, they did. It might have been weak, but they had it. And that was Lot. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. So let's go to the next point. God knows how. Isn't that what it says? I couldn't think of a better way to put it, which is probably wise because that's how God puts it. Then the Lord knows how. So here's the, here's the uh, then clause, finally coming. You have in force all of these examples, then it's clear that God knows how to deliver the righteous. 
to rescue the righteous, the godly, from trials or trial, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God knows how. Folks, you know what? I mean, there's some things I don't know how to do, probably more things I don't know how to do than what I do know how to do. But some things are complicated. Some things I maybe could do them if you taught me. If you asked me to sing in the choir, I couldn't sing the parts. You'd have to teach me that, that part, and I'd have to practice it a lot of times. But some people can do that. I don't know how. I, don't know. I mean, I understand the theory behind it, but I can't just make it happen. Uh, some people fix electric motors. My, the extent to which I can fix an electric motor is to look and see if a, a wire is loose or if it's bound up to shoot lubricant on it. That's, I'm not sure I can go too much more than that without reading a manual or watching a YouTube thing or something like that. And If you live in our day, it's cheaper to buy a new one anyway, right? Unless you really get into some serious electric motors, then it isn't. But you know what? God knows how to do this. And I, I, I don't say that lightly. I want you to see a couple things here. He gives the examples of Noah and his family and Lot. But, you know, we could include the good angels as well so that it would be all across, all three. Now, the Old Testament in Genesis 6, 9, do I, I think I give you that verse. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So the Old Testament tells us that Noah was a righteous man. Peter brings it out and says he was a herald of righteousness, his life, his message. But when he talk, starts talking about Lot, you and I are kind of, yeah, scratching our heads on that. But if you just had the Old Testament to read, I'm not sure you would come away with this conclusion. So we might be surprised by it, but it doesn't appear that Abraham was because he was beseeching God for that city I think his whole petition, in which he keeps whittling down and whittling down and whittling down with God until he gets from 40 to 10, I think he's thinking about Lot. So apparently he's not surprised by it. This is how he, he says to God in his initial reaction when the angels say, we're going to destroy the place. And God's, Noah says, really? You're going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So they both... Uh, Noah and Lot, they both experienced the trial of living among those who rejected God and his truth. That's a trial, folks. I mean, when you're living in a, a generation, and it is getting more and more and more and more that way. And I'm really afraid where it's, it's headed if, if somehow the Lord doesn't intervene or Jesus tarries because, of, you know, People who believe like we believe and who think like we think are not in favor in this world. They both serve as examples of how God knows how all during the time that you are find yourself in that situation, God knows how to keep you safe, to keep you from that trial, to keep you faithful to him in the ultimate sense. That is to say that we do not renounce our faith. God knows how to deliver, to deliver his people out of trial. Now think about how God proved that. I mean, think about how he rescued Noah. 
If you're Noah, how would you be rescued from a flood? Really, think about it. How could you be rescued from a flood? Not a problem. God says, just build an ark. I'll tell you how to do that. And I'll keep you safe while you're doing it. If you think about Lot and Sodom and the whole place is going to be destroyed, what do you do? Well, you might think it'd be good to get out of there. Yeah, you might think that, but Lot lingered, remember? He had trouble even with that. But God knew how to prevail. The guy grabs him by his coat and <laughs> gives him a yank. God knows how. And I, I make the point for you, it may seem small, but our version here that we're using uses the word from, and it's actually probably a little better rendered, rendered out of. God knows how to rescue his people out of when the time comes. Noah was there for a long, long time living in that ungodly generation, bearing the brunt and reproach of people who were antagonistic towards God and his word. Lot lived among those people. And I think I say here, uh, oh yeah, I got more to go, I guess. Both experienced the trial of living among those who rejected God and his truth, and God went to great lengths in rescuing them. God knows how to deliver his people out of trial. There was something I wanted to say there, and about as fast as I was looking for it, it got away from me. But the Lord knows how to do this. Um, oh, yeah, I know what I was going to say. Because um, you and I don't think so about Lot. And somewhere in here I thought I had a note. Oh, yeah, it's in that, it's in that point B. Got to hurry now. Uh, though I say here, Lot may surprise us, though Peter's side notes in verses 7 and 8 offer some explanation. So uh, Lot was an unhappy man. Lot tortured himself. If he were like the Sodomites, he wouldn't have done this. But of course, it was a self-inflicted wound, and I'm running out of time, so I don't really have time to keep talking about that. But I do want you to see what I have to say by the way of conclusion here. So this is what I told you I wouldn't get back to until the very end. Because what you might expect in this long conditional statement is, if God knows how to judge, and he gives these three examples, the wicked, then he will surely judge the false teachers because that's the background of people's, but Peter's readers. But it's interesting he doesn't do that. He gives them this encouragement. When you might have expected that, you have to acknowledge that outcome is obvious, but Peter's end note is for his readers. You know what? Just like Noah and just like Lot, it might not be tomorrow that God takes you out of that situation. I have no control over that, nor do you. It depends on what's God's plan and what he has us here for and what he's doing in a sense that's broader than you and me. In the meantime, it's enough to know God knows how. We have to live patiently in this world while God works out his purposes, all of which he doesn't tell us, some of which he hints at. That chapter 3, verse 9 gives us some hint as a part of it, maybe. But we can do so confidently and with great assurance, and that's what Peter is trying to encourage his readers with. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. I pray that you will bless anything here that was helpful and was from you to our hearts. 
Anything that was not, just cast that aside. May it be something that we do not recall and are soon to forget. And bless in the service to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.